It's all about gravity waves on this special edition of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week I got over 200 of the same question about gravity waves, so we're going to do a whole episode on that. And also, coming up later this month, we're going to do an event called Lost and Found in Phoenix and Los Angeles. Stick around at the end of the show to hear more about that, but for now, let's get it started. Hello, Science Mike. My name is Ben. My brother just recommended this show to me about a week and a half ago, and I've been listening to it a lot, really enjoying it. I'm super interested in philosophy and theology and science, but these are all areas that I'm constantly wanting to grow in. I don't feel like I've got a firm grasp on all of them. So your show is perfect for me. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. Really, really enjoying it. One of the particular areas I am very deficient in is my understanding of physics. Recently on social media, I've been reading a lot about gravitational waves in this new discovery. And I'm not really sure, sorry, mind the pun about the gravity of the situation with this, but I was wondering if you could illuminate what the this situation highlights for us and what we know about physics and what we know about Einstein and all that jazz. So if you could talk about this, that would be really awesome. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much. We live in an era of media hype, but it's honestly difficult to overstate the importance of this announcement regarding gravity waves. This is a huge deal. And I was really encouraged that my audience, all of you listening, found it to be such a big deal. You actually crashed the voicemail system I used for recorded questions. You filled up my mailbox with questions about gravity waves. And the uh, email questions, absolutely, uh, (laughs) has more questions coming in faster than I've ever had. All the same question, remarkably, what is the deal with gravity waves? Well, if you think back just a little bit into the past, uh, remember the announcement of the Higgs boson, and that was a huge deal that the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, had gained statistical confidence that they had detected the Higgs boson, this predicted particle that was a manifestation of the Higgs field, a completely, at the time, unverified theoretical framework for how everything in the universe has mass. Surely enough, as we increased our particle energies in the Large Hadron Collider, the Higgs boson showed up as predicted, which was an incredible validation to the standard model of physics. And that's how science works. You build models based on observation. You look at reality and you figure out the numbers behind it. And if your model is good, it will not only explain the world as we see it, but it will also make testable predictions about what we haven't seen yet. And so the Higgs boson was this incredible validation of the standard model of physics, that the math was so good that it revealed the unseen. 
And then when we eventually saw the unseen, it was what we predicted. And gravity waves are a similarly powerful validation of Einstein's views on space-time, popularly called the theory of relativity. This is a huge deal. Now, this is kind of the final big prediction Einstein made that has been validated. All of Einstein's predictions over time have been validated. For example, uh, one of the things that Einstein's relativity predicts is something called gravitational lensing, where galaxies or black holes are very massive Structures or objects in space will actually bend light rays in the same way that a lens does. We've seen that. Einstein's really strange predictions about the nature of time have been validated and underpin a lot of our technologies. And if we're going to talk about gravity waves, I think we need to kind of cover the theory of relativity. And that's why I'm only doing one question on this week's show. This is not going to be a normal five-minute or seven-minute answer. I'm going to take all the time we need to cover this. And it's going to be a little brain-bending if you're not familiar with physics and cosmology. So I cleared out all the other physics questions I had on deck this week because I don't want anyone to get a nosebleed uh, as we contemplate these very counterintuitive ideas. Now, in terms of gravity waves, it has been a really bumpy road detecting them. Uh, There's been a lot of attempts over time, and I was actually afraid to tweet the findings about gravity waves this week until I saw some other voices weigh in because there's been so many false positives. But before we get into all that, uh, let's talk about the theory of relativity. It has two parts, okay? The first part of relativity is called special relativity. And special relativity says something that's relatively simple, and that is the speed of light is the same in all reference frames or from all perspectives. When I say reference frame, just think perspective or point of observation. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal. You would imagine intuitively that the speed of everything is the same in all reference frames. But the fact that the speed of light is the same in all reference frames actually undermines our intuition. It's a really counterintuitive result. And what I mean is that the fact that the speed of light is constant means that time actually slows down as your speed increases compared to a slower moving observer. I'll say that again. Your perception of time slows down as your speed increases compared to a slower moving or stationary observer. It's the only way light can always be measured traveling 186,000 miles per second from every perspective. 186,000 miles per second is mine blowingly fast. Now, because that number is so high, it can be hard to understand the effects of relativity. So we're going to do a thought experiment and we're going to change the speed of light so we can understand how this could be so. So let's imagine for a second that instead of 186,000 miles per second, light only traveled 100 miles per hour, about the speed of a really fast fastball in baseball. Uh, And I I had to Google that. I'm not really a sports guy, but apparently a 100-mile-an-hour fastball is a big deal. It's also a nice round number we can uh, take apart easily. So imagine for a second that you're standing on a pitcher's mound in a baseball diamond, and a photon, a particle of light, passes you going the speed of light, which in this case 
is 100 miles an hour. Now imagine you had a device that let you measure the speed of photons, and as you measured this photon as it passed, it was 100 miles an hour, which is totally obvious. The same thing would happen if you threw a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and measured it with a radar gun. It would measure 100 miles an hour. We're all clear here. Now, here's where it gets weird. Imagine someone is driving in from the outfield on a go-kart at 50 miles an hour. 50 miles an hour is half of 100 miles an hour, right? So we would imagine that if someone was on a golf cart or a go-kart traveling 50 miles an hour and they measured the speed of a baseball traveling 100 miles an hour, they would measure that speed as what? 50 miles an hour because they're going half as fast as the baseball. This is, you know, how reference frames work. Uh, It's the same way that to you on a train, if you tossed a baseball at 10 miles an hour and the train was going 80, to you on the train, the baseball looks like it's going, what, 10 miles an hour. To someone outside watching the train go by, though, it looks like the fastball is going 90 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour plus 10 miles an hour. So we're just doing the opposite. We're subtracting. And that would work for baseballs. If you measured the speed of a 100-mile-an-hour baseball from a go-kart going 50 miles an hour in the same direction, the speed of the baseball would appear to be 50 miles per hour. Now, if the person on the go-kart, instead of measuring the speed of a baseball, measured the speed of a photon, what speed do you think they would measure? Well, our intuition would say that light would appear to be going 50 miles an hour. But what we find in physics is if the speed of light was 100 miles an hour, both the person on the pitcher's mound and the person in the go-kart would measure the same speed for that photon of 100 miles per hour. Now, how is that possible? There's only one way to make it possible, and that's to change the rate at which each observer experiences time. The person in the go-kart would experience time half as fast as the stationary observer. So every one second that ticked by on the wristwatch of the person on the pitcher's mound, only a half second would tick by in the go-kart. But because of that, they would both measure the same 100 mile per hour speed for that photon in our imaginary universe where the speed of light is 100 miles per hour. Now, thank goodness the speed of light is not 100 miles per hour or else the world would be weird. It would be very difficult for us to synchronize events and meetings and clocks because every minor change in velocity would significantly alter the passage of time. But luckily, in our universe, light speed is not 100 miles per hour. It's 186,000 miles per second. And that means the effects of special relativity aren't really relevant at everyday speeds or, or gravitational energies. You see, we have validated the effects of relativity at scale, though. GPS satellites are traveling so fast compared to an observer on the Earth that their clocks do drift over time more than a normal clock drift. And for GPS satellites to function, engineers had to incorporate special relativity into the software and mechanisms that drive GPS, or else that blue dot on your iPhone would drift over time and become less and less accurate. 
special relativity, as weird as it is, is a demonstrable fact in our universe. Isn't that (laughs) crazy if you think about it? Now, that's just special relativity, which is one part of Einstein's larger theory of relativity, which is often called general relativity. General relativity incorporates that fixed speed of light from any reference frame into a larger predictive model about how the universe is structured. General relativity says that space and time are both part of a single fabric called space-time, that there is no separation between spatial and temporal dimensions in our universe. I'll let you think about that for a second. So you have space and time, both part of a single fabric, and that this fabric of space-time is warped or stretched by gravity. So you can imagine our sun, this massive, massive object at the center of the solar system, is bending or warping space-time like a bowling ball that's been set on a sheet that was stretched tight. You can imagine that, right? Just imagine you... Four friends stretch out a bed sheet as tight as they can, and they drop a bowling ball in the center. Of course, the sheet's going to sag. Now, if you had a ball bearing and you rolled a ball bearing across a sheet that was stretched tight, it would roll off the other end. But if you add that bowling ball into the center of the sheet, that little ball bearing can't travel in a straight line anymore. It's going to get, it's going to turn because of the curvature of the sheet. Well, that's what gravity does to space-time itself. That's why our planets are locked in orbit with our sun. It's why the moon orbits the Earth. It's why you stay on the Earth's surface. The curvature of space-time due to gravity causes you to accelerate towards mass. Now, why doesn't the moon crash into the Earth? Because the moon is traveling fast enough to be in free fall that's equal to the curvature of space-time. So the moon is constantly falling around the Earth, and the Earth is constantly falling around the sun. The sun is constantly falling around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. General relativity presents a very (laughs) strange view of the universe, but one with very powerful predictive accuracy. Now, because space and time are warped by gravity, it's not just space. As you get into very steep gravity wells, time is stretched as well. So for example, if you get very near to a black hole's event horizon, time starts to slow down from your perspective compared to someone who's not trapped in that gravity well. Now, uh, (laughs) some of you, this is a review, but I'm imagining for most of the audience, this is mind-bending stuff. But I wanted to just get this two main ideas to you. One, special relativity tells us that the speed of light is the same from every reference frame. And two, general relativity tells us that gravity can bend space-time. And that's where gravity waves come into play. So if mass can warp space through gravity, then very, very large masses can ripple space-time. These are gravity waves. Just imagine a bowling ball dropped into a pond versus a pebble. You drop a pebble 
there's not going to be much of a disturbance. But you drop a bowling ball into a pond, that's going to make pretty significant waves. Now imagine you dropped a boulder into a pond. That's going to make huge waves travel in all directions. And gravity waves are ripples in space-time itself. In the same way that sound waves are compression waves in our atmosphere, the atmosphere itself compressing and stretching because of the energy of movements and vibrations. The, you're hearing me right now because my vocal cords shake and cause waves to travel through the air and strike this microphone. Gravity waves are the same thing, but with space-time itself. And because of Einstein's incredible predictive power, because relativity has been validated so many times, we've been looking for gravity waves since Einstein's days. And I held off tweeting about last week's discoveries because there have been so many false claims that say someone has discovered gravity waves in the history of physics. Their earliest attempts involved aluminum tubes, <laughs> you know, almost uh, lone rangers trying to win a Nobel Prize. But even more recent well-funded operations like BICEP2 have produced false positives. The fact is, gravity waves are hard to find and there's a reason for that. Detecting gravity waves is really hard because you're talking about waves that distort the very fabric of space-time. Again, just like sound waves are manifestations of compressed atmosphere, gravity waves are manifestations of compressed space-time. And these ripples are tiny because gravity is very weak when compared to other forces in physics. Now, I know that sounds strange, here on Earth, where you feel the intense pull of gravity every time you climb a flight of stairs, for example. You climb enough stairs, and you become very aware of Earth gravity well. But just think about how small a magnet is needed to pull a nail off a table. And when you do that, that magnet is attracting that nail, is pulling that nail more powerfully than an entire planet's gravity. Gravity is weak compared to other forces in physics. And because of that, gravity waves are very, very small, very difficult to measure. Now, that's uh, not the only reason that gravity waves are hard to detect, because think about this. <laughs> Imagine you had a ruler that was so accurate it could measure the width of a proton, just a tiny, tiny measurement. You might think that such an accurate ruler would be small enough to help you measure disturbances in space-time, but this is the problem. It doesn't work. Because gravity waves wouldn't just stretch a proton when space-time is bent. They also stretch the ruler itself the same amount. In order to measure gravity waves, you need a ruler that is immune to the effects of warped space-time, or at least more resistant, something that is constant, may even a constant. And that's why scientists turn to the constant that defines our cosmos according to special relativity. Remember, the speed of light is the same from all reference frames. And so a ruler made of light may just be able to reveal gravity waves. Now, Kip Thorne was one of the founders of LIGO, which is the Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. You may recognize his name 
from the movie Interstellar. He's the physicist who helped those filmmakers model wormholes and black holes with such accuracy. Dr. Thorne, along with Ronald Drever and Rainer Weiss, had an idea to build a massive light-based ruler to measure these ripples in space-time we call gravity waves. To do this, they built two stations in opposite corners of the country, Louisiana and Washington State. Each one consisted of two four-kilometer tubes built at right angles to one another. These tubes are evacuated. They have a nearly perfect vacuum because even air molecules would create too much turbulence for the measurements of these instruments to be accurate. So inside these evacuated tubes is a laser emitter and some very carefully constructed and placed mirrors that send a single laser down both tubes and back where they converge into something called an interference pattern, one of the fundamental things that occur because of the wave-particle duality of light. Uh, I won't get into that. We maybe can talk about that on a future episode. All you need to understand is that when light beams recombine or any beams of light combine, they create an interference pattern. And what they're looking for, because these two tubes are moving in different directions, they would be stretched and pulled at different times, very slightly different times by gravity waves, and therefore they would reshape or modify the interference pattern that showed up on the detector. It's a very brilliant idea that was very expensive to operate. I mean, it's an incredibly accurate system. It can detect fluctuations in space-time smaller than an atom, but that sensitivity makes it a pain in the neck to operate. You know, building the detector was hard enough. It required new engineering and optics, mirrors that were more accurate and consistent than had ever been constructed. But every single vibration can affect the interference pattern on this detector. Researchers had to learn not only how to construct this thing so it was the most immune from environmental vibrations and impacts, but also how to weed out the signals that got through any precautions they could take that were Earth-based phenomena. Because of that, LIGO is the most expensive project the National Science Foundation has ever been a part of. It's had numerous cost overruns, and it's fallen behind schedule many times. But it was only a few days after it had been running at a retuned higher sensitivity known as Advanced LIGO for a few days when it first received this signal. Now that sound is an audio manifestation of the difference in the interference patterns. That allows our ears to hear the ripple of space-time itself. It's an amazing, amazing sound. Uh, but when we directly convert it that way, the pitch is relatively low and it makes it difficult for our ears to really pick out the finer points of the signal. So next I'm going to play a pitch-shifted version of the same sound that's more in the sweet spot of human hearing. That is the sound of a gravity wave, the first ever detected by humanity. 
It was formed when two black holes merged after a period of mutual orbit where they spun around their mutual center of gravity at near light speed. Each of these two black holes were incredibly massive, dozens of times the mass of our own sun. When they merged, their combined mass was about three stellar masses smaller than their original separate values. They lost the mass of three of our own sun as they merged. Part of that lost mass became the energy that was able to send a ripple through the cosmos, a gravity wave. I mean, just think about that. Two black holes, 1.3 billion light years from the Earth, sent a ripple through space that we just heard. It's been 1.3 billion years since the event, and yet today we can hear it with our own ears. This is a huge deal, and not just because it validates Einstein's theories. An even bigger, more important component of the discovery of gravity waves is that it gives us a new means to peer into the cosmos. You see, for all of history, we've looked into the sky and therefore into our past with light and other forms of electromagnetic radiation. Telescopes, radio telescopes, even gamma-ray detectors, all of them sample photons that are traveling through space. It's a really miraculous ability if you think about it. Because of light's limited speed, the farther away we look from our Earth, the farther back we see in time. That allows us to see stars and galaxies as they were long ago. When you look at the sun... You look eight minutes into the past. When you look at Saturn, you look 80 or 90 minutes into the past. But when you look at the Andromeda galaxy, you look two and a half million years into the past because the photon that strikes your eye on a beautiful autumn night left Andromeda two and a half million years ago. Now, the farthest galaxies we see via space-based telescopes are billions of light years away and therefore billions of light years into the past. We're able to see galaxies as they were over 10 billion years ago. And that lets us confirm via observation our theories about how the universe operates and how it was formed. We can look with our own eyes because we can sample signals from events that happened long ago just by catching photons. But there's a limit. The farthest we can see with photons is something called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And this radiation is a signal from about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It's the first moment the universe had cooled down enough to allow light to travel through it without being annihilated. And because of that, the CMBR, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, is a baby picture of our own 
universe when it was just 380,000 years old because it was right where scientists predicted it would be before it was discovered. The cosmic microwave background radiation is some of our best evidence for the Big Bang and the overall age of the cosmos. But it also acts like a curtain that prevents us from looking farther into the past. Well, at least it did until now. Because the cosmic microwave background radiation may be a curtain, but gravity waves are like a sound that can pass through it. I mean, just imagine that for a second. Imagine if the room you were in was separated from the next room by a curtain. That curtain, if it was thick enough, would prevent all light from passing through. But you could hear someone laugh on the other side of the curtain. You could hear someone clap their hands. You could hear a conversation. And because of that, you could observe the events in the next room, even though you couldn't see them. So you can imagine, with more sensitive detectors, we'd be able to hear the gravity waves that came from the very moment our universe expanded from singularity. We would be able to hear the Big Bang. More than just a baby picture, such a signal would be the cry of a newborn universe at the very moment it came to be. A signal we could sample and measure from the very beginning of time. This is why gravity waves are such big news. This is why scientists are so excited. And scientists are already working on plans for a space-based LIGO called the Evolved Laser Inferometer Space Antenna. We'd basically put three satellites into the Earth's Lagrange points, which are points in space where the sun, the Earth, and the moon's gravity cancel each other out. And that would give you a stable platform to use lasers and interference patterns to find much smaller signals than we've been able to find here on Earth's surface. Potentially, this technology will let us hear gravity waves from the Big Bang and therefore, for the first time, may let us hear what really happened in the beginning. I know that was a heavy answer. If you'd like to learn more about gravity waves and maybe get some visuals, it is relatively difficult to understand many of these concepts without a little uh, assistance from your visual cortex. Just go to asksciencemike.com. I've got links to some articles and some videos that will tell you more about gravity waves and what they mean in a visual way. So that's on asksciencemike.com. As I mentioned at the very top of the show, there's some really cool events coming up. I'll be in Phoenix and Los Angeles uh, at the very end of February to do an event called Lost and Found. If you've heard episodes six and seven of the Liturgist podcast, this is a dramatic portrayal of the content of those episodes. So I come out and tell my story of faith, lost and found, in small vignettes that are interspersed with really beautiful music by Gunger and the Brilliance, including strings. I mean, it's a gorgeous event. We also do some guided meditations. And the goal here is to lead you on your own time of contemplation and discovery 
uh, with how you relate to God, how you understand God. We've done Lost and Found a few times. People have told us it's one of the most powerful events they've ever been to. Now, in Phoenix, we're partnering with a church called Trinity Mennonite Church, and they're doing something really spectacular. They've bought the show. They've made it so we can afford to come, uh, but they've also covered those costs. And the reason they've done that is they want all ticket sales, 100% of ticket sale proceeds will go to the International Rescue Committee. That's a relief organization that deals with the needs of refugees. So if you come to our event, you'll be supporting that cause. Now, there are VIP tickets available for the event in Phoenix, and I recommend that you buy them because not only are you going to offer more financial support to the International Relief Committee, you're also going to come to a VIP event. But instead of like a meet and greet or or something like that, you're going to go with us to this charity and volunteer and support uh, people in need. That's that's the VIP event is mutual service. It's the most liturgist thing I could imagine. So incredibly impressed with the work of Trinity Mennonite and the International Rescue Committee. So if you're anywhere near Phoenix, I mean anywhere near Phoenix, right now go to AskScienceMike.com, click on events, and then click on that Phoenix event and learn more. Um, if you go to the Liturgist Facebook page, there's actually a video you can watch that will tell you more about the IRC. It's going to be an incredible event for an incredible cause, and we'd love to see you. Lost and found in L.A. If you don't have tickets, hurry up. The first showing, we're doing two events that night. The first one's already sold out. All the tickets are gone. Uh, and the second event is selling well. So don't wait. <laughs> Hurry up, get online, go buy your ticket. They're very inexpensive. We'd love to see you in Los Angeles or Phoenix for Lost and Found. Now, I have a ton of events coming up. I'm going on tour with Gunger, and all those events are on my website, but I've also just got a lot of bookings. I've got an event in Ventura, California with Peter Enns. I'm going to be going to Minneapolis and doing an event with Greg Boyd. So there's lots of opportunities to see me. All those can be found by going to AskScienceMike.com and just clicking on the events button. You'll get a list of everywhere I'm going with all the details. There are a few events I haven't put up there yet because there's not enough details, but keep watching. There's going to be a chance to see me pretty much everywhere in the country this year. And uh, that will only continue to accelerate toward the fall and we get closer to my book launch, which I'm really excited about. I finally turned in the manuscript. It's done. Uh, I feel like I lost 100 pounds because I don't have the weight of that manuscript on my shoulders anymore. But lots of opportunities to get together. And uh, I'd love to see you this year. Now, I also need questions. This show is your show. If there's no questions, there's no show. Now, let's be honest, there's plenty of questions. Um, But new and interesting questions are what drive the program. So if you go to AskScienceMike.com, you can fill out a form that submits a question to me. You can record a question, which is how you hear people's voices on the program. If you'd like to be radio podcast famous, no big deal. Just record a question. You come on the show. You can also submit questions using the hashtag AskScienceMike on social media. I mainly check SoundCloud YouTube, and Twitter with a heavy, heavy emphasis on Twitter. It's easiest for me if you're going to do a recorded question if you use the form on the website. It just saves me a ton of time. 
Uh, also, the show is made possible by the generous financial support of my patrons on Patreon. They run the show. I don't run the show. How do questions get on the show? My patrons pick them. So if you'd like to be involved in shaping the discussions we have on Ask Science Mike, if you'd like to keep making it possible for me to host this open conversation about science and faith, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon button and learn more. A dollar a month helps. Five dollars a month is huge. I would love it if the show was sustained on nothing but one to five dollar a month donations. Today, unfortunately, a smaller number of people give much more generously. But there's a lot of listeners to this show. So if you've got a buck, send me a buck. That's all I'm asking for. If the show helps you, if it helps you in your journey. Now, if you don't even have a dollar, I've been there. I know what that's like. You can still help the program two ways. One, you can review the show on iTunes. iTunes really heavily includes ratings and how the show ranks and therefore how people discover it. And also, if you had an episode you enjoyed, just go and share it on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or whatever social media platform you use. That's how the people who need this show find it. You guys are great about that. I, I just get so much support. I get so many positive comments. Uh, even though we talk about controversial things, believe it or not, I don't get a lot of hate mail or negative messages. I get thoughtful critique and encouragement and that just tells me I have found the most amazing people in the world <laughs> through this program. I wish the rest of society was so thoughtful and so civil. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for his hard work on pre-production and the show. I want to thank Greg Nordine for his producer hat and the sound design that he does, making the show sound good, sound listenable. And of course, I want to thank my friend Jeb for writing, composing, recording the Ask Science Mike theme song, which is so catchy that people sing it to me in the airport all the time. <laughs> it's, it's, I just love the puzzled look on people's faces who aren't part of this inside joke. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed these words on gravity waves and we'll return with a more normal multi-question episode next week.